Hey everybody, you're listening to the Clearer Thinking Podcast from Grace Valley Church in Dundas. I'm your host, Paul Vandenbrink, the lead pastor of Grace Valley Church. Thanks for listening. Well, hey gang, welcome back to the show. Glad you're with me for another episode. Uh, Before we get started, just uh, one thing to let you know, um, we're going to be moving the podcast to its own streaming platform in June. Uh, it's still going to be on SoundCloud, but what I mean is this. Uh, right now, you can find the Clearer Thinking podcast on the Grace Valley Church podcast stream. But in June, we're going to separate the Grace Valley Church podcast from the Clearer Thinking podcast. So you'll have to search for the Clearer Thinking podcast with Paul Vanderbrink, and you'll be able to find uh, the podcast there. Uh, going forward. That's beginning in the first week of June. So you don't have to do that yet, but it is coming. And that's if you don't have the the Grace Valley Church app, which you can get from Tithely on the App Store or on Google Play. If you go to Tithely and download the Tithely Church app and search for Grace Valley Church, then you'll have our app, which will allow you to see everything that's happening at Grace Valley Church, be able to find the Clearer Thinking podcast there, be able to connect to our services when they're live streamed. You'll see our announcements. You'll see our uh, different ministries that you can participate in. Anyway, feel free to have a look at that if it's of any interest to you. Um, We're back studying the five points of Calvinism, and we are currently at the very first point known as total depravity. We started this last week. Now, what is total depravity? It's that biblical teaching that says that everyone is born into a state of corruption as a result of original sin. Or very simply put, everyone's born basically bad. Now, it's not, as we said last week, not that we are as bad as we could be. That's called utter depravity. But we are pretty bad. (laughs) We're just not as bad as we could be. Because God restrains our sinful desires so we don't go as far with them as we could. Now, I said last week that I prefer the term pervasive depravity or possibly even radical corruption to total depravity because either of those terms better describes the doctrine, in my opinion. But it's not a huge deal what term you use so long as you know what you mean when you use it. Now, we are not quite done with this teaching just yet because there's a subcategory of this teaching that's really, really important. Uh, There's an implication to the doctrine of pervasive depravity that we need to address, and it's this. If it's true that every human being is born with a sinful nature that is inclined toward evil, then we don't have the ability to choose spiritual good. We can't choose spiritual good over spiritual evil. In a sense, human beings are no longer free in the way that Adam and Eve were free before the fall. Because you see, before the fall, Adam and Eve were created able not to sin. Now, they did choose to sin, and the fall happened, but they were originally created able not to sin. Every human being since then is born not able not to sin. In other words, we're born into bondage to our sinful natures. We're unable to love God or obey God. Listen to how uh, 
our church's confession. It's called the Westminster Confession of Faith. Listen to how it puts it. I'm going to use the plain English version rather than the uh, original 1600s version because it's a little easier for you to understand. It says this, All actual sins come from this original sin, a pollution which makes us totally unable and unwilling to do good. In fact, we oppose all good and lean completely towards evil. Or listen to how another Reformed confession, it's called the Canons of Dort. Listen to how it puts it. Therefore, all people are conceived in sin and are born children of wrath, unfit for any saving good, inclined to evil, dead in their sins, and slaves to sin. And it continues, listen to this. Without the grace of the regenerating Holy Spirit, they are neither willing nor able to return to God. Okay. Now, how is that for a high, fine how do you do? What, what a terrible description of human condition, eh? It sounds as if there's nothing worthwhile about human beings at all, but that's not what this doctrine is actually saying. Remember, the issue is not whether we can be kind to our neighbor or whether we're willing to help old ladies cross the street. This is about the fundamental orientation of the human heart. We were created to love God and to serve God. Before the fall, Adam and Eve, they did that wholeheartedly. They loved God with all their heart, mind, and strength, and they loved their neighbor as themselves. Since the fall, we don't do that anymore. Instead, we love ourselves with our whole heart, mind, and strength, and we love ourselves, that is, we care about ourselves more than anybody else, including our neighbors. This doctrine is not saying that human beings are not capable of any kind of good at all. Rather, it's saying that the fundamental orientation of our hearts are kind of turned in on themselves, and therefore, even the so-called good we may do is not properly directed. Listen to how one theologian puts it. He says, In a gang of pirates, we might find many things that are good in themselves. Courage and fidelity. They may be strictly honest with one another in their transactions and the division of all their spoil. Yet, as respects the government and the general principles, their whole life is one of the most wicked dishonesty. Here's what he's saying. Pirates might actually be pretty noble in the way they deal with each other, but that doesn't make them good. They're still wicked in the eyes, he says, of the government. And the Bible teaches that we are unable and unwilling to do the good that truly pleases God. Maybe we seem relatively good among our peers, but up against the standard of God, we just don't cut it. It's less about telling us that we're total trash and more about being honest about our predicament, that we are in big trouble. Now, listen, uh, people have a big problem with this teaching, the teaching of total inability. Big problems. And it's because they feel that it violates their freedom. We're free beings, it's said. And to say that we can't return to God, that we can't choose to love God without some prior intervention on his part, 
They say that that violates their freedom. It violates our right to choose. It means that conversion, you know, coming to faith in Jesus Christ, it's, it's really just coercion. God forces us to believe in him. We don't really choose to believe in him. We're, we're forced into it because God has to do something in us before we could ever choose him. And that, they say, is a violation of our freedom as human beings. But I want to argue, actually, that, that total inability does justice to our human nature because it doesn't just teach that we are unable to return to God. Yes, it does teach us that. But it says that we are unwilling to return to God. And that's a really, really, really important point. We don't want God. By nature, we want sin. We want to worship other things, ultimately ourselves, of course. But we want to worship other things rather than the Creator. So we actually choose as our hearts desire. We get what we want. We get exactly what we want. We're not coerced one way or another. Let me, let me use an illustration that might be helpful. Imagine I put a bowl of your favorite ice cream in front of you and I say, eat it. And you do. No problem. Why? Well, it's your favorite ice cream, right? So you love it. Now, imagine I give you a bowl of pig entrails covered in excrement and I say, eat it. You can't. Why can't you? It's not because you're physically incapable of it, but it's because you can't want to do it. No matter how many times I offer that bowl to you, you will reject it over and over and over again because you can't want it. You are unable to eat it because you are unwilling to eat it. But here's the thing. You're deciding as your heart desires. You're choosing according to your heart's desire. You're not doing anything against your will. Not at all. You're doing precisely as you want. And why are you doing precisely as you want? Because you're acting according to your nature. You're doing what comes naturally to you. Your natural taste is for your favorite ice cream and not for pig guts covered in poop. Listen. Let me try again. Put a zebra and a leopard in a fenced-in field together with 50 pounds of meat hanging from a hook. What's going to happen? The zebra is going to eat the grass all around. It's just going to start grazing on the, the tasty grass it sees. And the leopard is going to ignore the plants, ignore the grass, and it's going to chomp on that meat. Maybe even eat the zebra too. And why is that happening? Because of their natures. One of them's a herbivore, the other one's a carnivore. The leopard is not standing around complaining that it doesn't like the grass. It's not walking around shaking its head frustrated at the fact that it only eats meat. It wants meat. It hates grass. It's quite satisfied with its life. And the same thing is true of the zebra. The zebra's not wishing that it could tear into the hunk of meat. It's not standing there complaining that it has no canine teeth or incisors or whatever it needs. It's quite happy to munch on the grass it finds in the field. But now think about this. Go ahead and paint the zebra to look like the leopard. Cover over the lines with 
orange paint and put a bunch of black spots on it or dots on it or whatever, the zebra is not going to start eating meat just because you did that. It still won't eat meat. It won't desire the meat because its nature hasn't changed. We are all bound to do as our nature dictates. A lion acts like a lion. A zebra acts like a zebra. A leopard acts like a leopard. And a human being acts like a human being. We can't help it. We are bound by our natures. You could say that we obey our natures. And if our nature is sinful, then we will commit sin. If our nature is self-centered, we will be self-centered. And we're completely free to do so insofar as we choose according to our nature. So it's not accurate to say that total inability violates our freedom. Not at all. We're free to act according to our nature and according to our desires. And you might say, well, okay, then how in the world does anybody ever desire to love God and believe in Jesus? And, you know, that's a great question. It's a great question. Let's try to answer that question next week, okay? <laughs> or at least start to. But let me end uh, with some application of this doctrine, total inability, for today. What's the cash value of believing this doctrine? And, and we could go in a number of different directions. And I'm going to go in one in particular. Um, we might like to think that it's better to believe that people are capable of choosing to love God and believe in Jesus all on their own because we think it safeguards human free will or something. But think about this. Let's say you have a very close family member or a friend, colleague, I don't know, someone that you care very deeply about. They don't believe in Jesus. Um, and you have the opportunity to share your faith with them. You tell them about Jesus. You tell them who Jesus is to you and what he means to you. Uh, but it doesn't work in the sense that they're, they're not converted. They said, well, I'm happy for you, or I'm glad that that works for you, uh, or maybe they got sick of you bringing it up, and they said, don't talk to me about this anymore because I'm getting sick of it. All right? Um, now, a couple of things can happen to you at this point. You can get mad at them. What's wrong with them? Why are they so stubborn? Why don't they get it? You could become very frustrated with them and possibly even resent them for their refusal to believe the gospel, to believe like you do. Or you could get mad at yourself. You could say, well, what's wrong with me? Like, did I do something wrong? Did I say something wrong? Did I share the gospel in the wrong way? Did I do something or say something that pushes them away? Did I screw up somehow? Um... But if you remember the doctrine of total inability, you won't be angry either with them or yourself. Instead, with them, you'll pity them in a good way, okay? You'll be patient with them. You'll be understanding toward them. You'll realize when they don't get it, it's because they can't get it. It doesn't mean they're not responsible for refusing to believe. We will talk about that kind of stuff a little more next week. Of course they are. However, you won't get angry at their rejection of the gospel. You'll get sad because of it. And you won't be mad at yourself either. You'll know it's not up to you to make a flawless presentation of the gospel for them to believe. You won't feel pressure 
to be the perfect evangelist because you know it's not your eloquence or your logic or whatever that's going to convince them of their need for a Savior. It's the Spirit of God who does that, as we're going to see next week. What it will do is it'll drive you to pray. You know, the doctrine of total inability, it really invigorates your prayer life. You will plead for God to intervene in those people's lives because you know He alone can transform their hearts. He alone changes desires, changes wills. He alone turns leopards into zebras or vice versa, if you prefer. Okay, gang, that is the doctrine of total inability. And that is it for another episode of the Clear Thinking Podcast. I really appreciate you joining me and I hope you enjoyed it and have a wonderful week and we will see you next time. So long. Thank you.